If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation chapter 1. All through December, we're going to take a break from our normal course, making our way through redemptive history, the story of God's salvation throughout all of Scripture, and we will look at some Christological passages, passages that tell us particularly who Jesus is for us, what He has done and is doing for us. And so this morning we start with our first in that short lineup here in Revelation chapter 1. This is my favorite Christmas passage, which might surprise you, but I think it fits, as you'll see. And young Christians, young theologians, this is a picture of Jesus that we're not used to seeing, so here's what I want you to do. Draw a picture of Jesus the way we normally see him at Christmas... And then draw Jesus as he shows himself in this passage. Compare the two. And which one do you like more? And why? This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for those of us who need it desperately. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation in the kingdom, And the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, to Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning... I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white like wool, white like snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. 
and I have the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Pray with me as we begin. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are the great Savior of sinners, the one whom we most desperately need. And you, Lord Jesus, are the one who has conquered all of our enemies, sin and guilt and death. And they hold no victory over us any longer. And in Christ Jesus, the Savior, we are assured that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor anything in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if only we were to believe it. This is all that you hold out to us. This is who you are and what you are for us. This is what your scriptures testify to us. And still, we don't believe this. And that's why we're so fractured and so torn and bruised and despondent, and fearful, and sad. And so we pray that you'd open our eyes and soften our hearts, allow us to see, allow us to know that nothing will ever separate us from the love of our God in Christ Jesus our Lord, and make us alive with it. And for all of this, we'll give you thanks if you'll do it. And we ask it in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And would you be seated? Well, this Jesus in Revelation 1 is not the way Jesus is pictured at Christmas. Jesus is pictured in infancy at Christmas. He's pictured in a calculated softness. That was... Jesus' ministry to us, that he should come as a baby and not as an apocalyptic warrior. It would have been far too much, it would have been way too overwhelming for us had Jesus come to us looking like this. The beauty of the nativity, the infant appearing of Jesus, is that it gives us time to puzzle over him. And as Jesus grows, we get to grow into Him. A prophesied baby in a manger under the neon glow of a new star that's never shown up on astronomical charts before as the final punctuation to thousands of years of prophecy that takes some getting used to. At His first coming... Jesus came wrapped in the humility of the form of a baby. But at his first coming, he came to be all of this in Revelation chapter 1. And that's the real tenderness for John the Apostle. John is on the island of Patmos, he's not vacationing, he's being punished, he's persecuted, exiled, banished 
put away, to die ineffective, unheard, forgotten. And in John's own words, he tells us why in verse 9. On account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus, John has been preaching that the Word of God is fulfilled in the teachings and the life of Jesus. And the Christian movement has grown throughout the Roman Empire. And to shut John up, they put him away. Patmos sits in a string of islands that were used as prison islands. It's a rugged, deserted place. It's ten miles long, six miles wide. It's all cliffs and bluffs towering over the Aegean Sea. John will never leave this rock. This is prison without parole. There is no hope of escape for John. The island is cut off from the mainland by 37 miles of open water. There is no swimming for it. This is where John's work and his life end. But the question is, is this where his faith and his hope end too? It all depends. It depends on what John believes about Jesus. And so Jesus appears to him. We don't have a nativity set at our house. It's not because we don't believe in them. It's not because we are principally opposed to them. Our dog ate it. We'd gone out for some Christmas shopping one early December afternoon, and while we were away, the dog had it out with the Holy Family, and the dog won. With the precision of a cat burglar, he poked his nose into the creche and lifted Mary out. She got the worst of it. We came home, and the living room was a crime scene. Mary in pieces everywhere. And the baby Jesus, we never found him. (laughs) Tucked away in some box in some corner of my attic, we have a very nice stable. But if we were to set it out, it would look forlornly empty. It would be occupied only by a bewildered-looking Joseph, newly widowed, and an empty manger. (laughs) Now listen, we're not trying to be cute here, and we're not trying to be funny. The Romans thought they would wipe the gospel out just that easily. While no one was looking, they would wipe Jesus and his memory and his legacy out of every corner of the empire. And the comfort for John in jail is that Jesus is too strong. They can't do it. The assurance for John is Jesus in his sovereign love won't let it happen. And that's the comfort For any of us who have ever held on for dear life by faith. For any of us who have ever tried to live spiritually in circumstances we don't want. For any of us who have ever struggled to believe the word of God over the words of men and women. Who have followed the heart of Jesus instead of following 
the broken desires of our own hearts. Who have fallen to the same sins again and again and hoped against hope that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus are actually stronger than dominating sin. For anyone who has ever held out the good news to a non-believer, the loving kindness of Jesus as the medicine we all need for our broken humanity and have been shut down, ridiculed, rejected for it, exiled, persecuted like John. The comfort for any of us is that Jesus won't be wiped away. He's too good to allow it. Whether Jesus is the word that hangs on our lips or sings in our hearts or answers our deep-set fears, He is the eternal word that holds the universe together for the glory of God and the good of all people, but most especially for the good of God's people. And we need to know He's the strongest word. And for that, you don't need to see the cooing baby in a manger. You need to see the risen, unstoppable Jesus who can't be ignored. For that, you don't need the soft, ethereal glow of the stable. You need the blinding blaze of glory that darkens the noonday sun. You don't need Luke's birth narratives in chapter 2 of his gospel. You need Jesus who stands in the middle of Revelation chapter 1. When Jesus turned up like this, John was comforted, if a bit nervous. In verse 17, Jesus appearing like this causes John to fall down as though dead. Playing dead, scared half to death, doesn't matter. The effect is the same. John falls face down, heart drubbing in his ears... Breathing shallowly, convinced every breath will be his last. And this fearsome Jesus reaches out and touches John, which is the last thing he wanted. He was panting to himself, please don't touch me, please don't touch me. If this Jesus touches me, I incinerate. But it didn't happen. Jesus reached out and touched John with his right hand, the text says, his hand of strength. And says... Fear not. It's easy to interpret all of it when you pull it together. This fearsome Jesus says, All this is for you, John. I'm all this for you. Look at me. Look at my glory. And for us, it's painted in verses 13 through 16. I have priestly robes, finer than those the Pope wears while he's saying Christmas Mass is St. Peter's in Rome. And barristers wear their funny little wigs when they go to court. My hair is as white as wool, white like snow. I'm the Ancient of Days. I've seen it all. I'm judge over all. Supreme Court justices faint at my rulings. And Lady Justice wears a blindfold, but not me. I have eyes of fire. I see all things clearly. I can judge all things rightly. And my feet are burnished bronzed. They're not dirty, in other words. 
refined in the fire, hard forged. I can tramp through the filth of this world and the mire and the muck of your heart and my feet are impenetrable to stains. It's an image of unchanging moral purity. And my voice is like Niagara Falls because you don't hear me over the clamor of your own deafness and unbelief when I say to you things like, Fear not, and lo, I'm with you always, and it is finished. And the word that comes from my mouth makes sharp, clean cuts, does deep surgery, and stars, I have stars, John, angels who are heavenly protectors, sentries, guardians dispatched for local churches, whether those churches ever see the angels I send or not. I wear stars on my fingers like Liberace wears rings. And when I point, the angels do my bidding, my heart for my church. What is it that makes Jesus so glorious? Oh, there's a list of possibilities in the text. His omnipotence. That he's Alpha and Omega, the first letter in the Greek alphabet and the last. A to Z, he's the start and the end, the source and the destination. No, that's the color of his glory, but that's not his glory proper. His pan-dimensionality, his isness, wasness, is to comeness. No, again, that's some of the texture of his glory, but it's not the substance of it. There's something even more uniquely his own. It's righteousness. Righteousness that didn't bend or waver or buckle. Righteousness that never ran away, retreated, hid, cowered, went dormant or inactive. It's His righteousness that starts all things and ends all things. It's His righteousness that made all things And concludes all things and redeems some things in between. And that's significant. Jesus the righteous purchases unrighteous things into his righteousness. It's in the last half of verse 5 and on into verse 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom... He's made us His kingdom. We are priests to His God and Father. And this is His glory. This is His jurisdiction. Amen. Let no one oppose it, in other words. And that's it. Jesus the righteous is so pleased with His righteousness that He came into the world to make you righteous, to please you with His righteousness, and to spread His righteousness in the world through you. You understand all that? Jesus stepped out of eternity into Palestine, planted himself in a virgin's womb, laid himself out in a manger, walked the dusty roads between Galilee and Jerusalem, talking about the kingdom of God, the same kingdom he's built out of you. He carried a scandalous, shameful, joyful cross of guilt and law and condemnation, not his own, but assigned to him. All the way to Golgotha, the hill of the skull, he impaled himself on it under heavenly judgment. 
laid himself out in the full power of death three days. And on the third day, walked out of the tomb, a tomb with walls cut from stone. But to him, they were paper thin. They were too flimsy to hold him down in death. And it's all because he's righteous. He was able to do all of this because he is righteous. Which means that he loves in his cells, his fibers, in his blood and breath, the goodness, the truth, the beauty of God. That's righteous. The only strength that Jesus cared for, was interested in, claimed to know and trust, was the strength of God the Father. That's righteous. And he lived for it, and he died for it, and he lives forever for it, according to verse 18. And because Jesus is righteous, he snatched the keys that were possessed by death and Hades from their cold fingers, and they can't ever steal them back. In his righteous, sin-refusing flesh, Jesus holds the keys to unlock you from imprisoning particular sins, the ones that torment you, the ones with such power that you can't break yourself free from them, but Jesus holds the keys. He can turn you loose. In His righteous suffering with nails and crossbeams and eternal rejection, Jesus holds the keys that unbolt the iron bars of your guilt and your judgment and your shame for sin. All of this once held you far out of the reach of God's love, but no longer. In His righteous pulling of life back into His lifeless body, Jesus holds the keys to death. The death that pulls on you like a dark internal gravity. Sometimes you crave death, you know that? Sometimes you just go along with it, you accept it because it's been the norm. It's all that you're used to. Sometimes you lament it and you push against it, but you can't avoid it. In spite of your best intentions, your best efforts, somehow everything you do still ends up with the smear of death on it. But death is unlatched for those who belong to Jesus, the one who lives forever. That means death lingers and it's inconvenient, but it's not indomitable. Death is still a hard word, but it isn't the final word, and it isn't the strongest word. Atoning righteousness, forgiving righteousness, saving righteousness, loving righteousness, transforming righteousness. Those are the strongest words, and only those who know Jesus as he is in Revelation chapter 1 are able to say those words and mean them, throw them with weight and force and power. One day, death will be a word that doesn't pull shudders from us. It will only inspire laughs. What John sees in his vision is the panorama of the gospel. That Jesus put himself in the manger to dangle these keys from his fingers. All because he loves his righteousness and more, he loves his righteousness in you. In other words, the gospel of Christmas is 
the righteousness of Jesus is greater than the sin of sinners. And His righteousness will win over sin done to you and sin that comes out of you. And this is your comfort just like it was John's. And if you find comfort in anything else, it won't last. I'm sorry, it just won't stick. A family friend, along with his little sister, one December, long ago, when they were children, decided to go hunting through the house to see if they could discover where mom and dad had hidden their Christmas presents. And they found them in the basement. Now, they should have just taken a peek, backed slowly and quietly out of the room, and agreed to say nothing of the event at any point following. But that's not what they did. The pull was too strong. They got out all the toys, took them out of the boxes, assembled them, unwrapped all the games, spread them out on the floor. And when Mom and Dad came home from work that afternoon... Their children were locked in this state of premature Christmas sensory overload. So mom and dad took all the toys and disassembled them and boxed them back up. Gathered up all the games, put them away, closed the boxes on those. And for the rest of the month, the whole family spent the rest of the month, right up until Christmas Day, giving away their Christmas. They found less fortunate families in town, and every gift went to someone else. There was not one, not one gift left for the greedy, taking, selfish children. Now, our problem is not that we tear into the gift of Jesus' overcoming righteousness too soon. It's that We never tear into it at all. And it's all yours. What amazes me is that Revelation is a book of events and series of events and cycles of events. It's the highly imaged and interpretive chronicle of the events we're now living in and the events that will bring the curtain down on history. In fact, John is told by Jesus in a voice like Wynton Marsalis playing Handel's Messiah on trumpet. Write down the things that must take place. And John's all geared up for a book of action. And then absolutely nothing happens in the first chapter of the book. Revelation, the book of revealed events with all of its twists and turns and mysteries and monsters, it doesn't open with an event. The book opens with a person. And the point of that is to say to John and to all of us, Jesus is greater than all these events. Jesus is greater than our events. And when that truth kindled itself in the heart of John, all alone on his island of exile. Can you imagine the sermon that he preached to himself, standing behind a rock for a pulpit, proclaiming the good news into the wind? Can you imagine the hymns that John sang on an abandoned beach 
He put the choir of First Presbyterian Church downtown to shame. And if Jesus wanted John's heart to come alive like that, don't you think that what he wants for your hearts is exactly the same? If there was one thing I could get my church to believe, one thing I could get my flock to see, whether they're skeptics or disciples barely limping along, or disciples who are convinced that they win all the gold stars there are to be won. If there was one thing I could get my unbelieving neighbors to begin to reckon with, the hopeless, the helpless, the heartbroken, the smug, the self-satisfied, if there's one thing I could wrestle my own heart to take hold of and not let go, it's this. Jesus is bigger than our events That's the one thing we don't believe and the one thing that would be our lasting comfort just like it was for John the exile. Jesus, glorious and righteous strength, shrinks down all of our sorrows and our sufferings and our self-destructive sins. It doesn't just wipe them all away. It doesn't take them away immediately. They're all very real and they all really hurt. But they're not all powerful and they're not all knowing and they don't even have the right to define you ultimately. They can be used for your good and your growth, but they don't rule you. They're challenges, certainly. They are affecting. But if you believe this passage... Your sufferings, your sorrows, your self-destructive sins cannot wipe away the righteousness of Jesus. The righteousness He has for you to enjoy. On the other hand, if you flip that around, if you spin it, the righteousness of Jesus can make your sorrows and sufferings and sins beg for mercy. And they have no choice but to submit to His heart of love for you. Jesus' glorious and righteous splendor keeps all of our successes in scale. Uh, It's nice to succeed. It's, It's wonderful to do well, to enjoy seasons where everything falls into place. Peace is the norm. Comfort and ease and joy are your companions. Maybe there's some financial cushion you've never enjoyed before. But none of these things holds a candle to the righteousness of Jesus that you are to wear with Him. None of these things will last. Your best successes will all fade and be forgotten. But the righteous character of Jesus is the best quality the Savior has, and it's eternal, and it's yours. And if that excites you at all, it'll keep you from obsessively needing to succeed and being depressed until you do. It'll keep your little private glories, the ones you enjoy rightly, from mutating and turning into enormous idols that carry you away and break your heart endlessly. Jesus' glorious and righteous love is a Jesus finally big enough to be worth telling our friends and co-workers and neighbors and family about. 
A Jesus who's a holy handful for all that they live with and struggle under and suffer through. This Jesus who shines like the sun and intends to shatter our darkness. This Jesus so full and complete in himself who means to mend our brokenness and fill our emptiness. This Jesus who is himself the revelation of how God loves sinners, who saves and brings those who are distant near to God to be held in love by him. And he doesn't leave us guessing at what's in God's heart. He doesn't leave us fictionalizing it. He gives us God's heart, implants it in us, grows it in us. This Jesus intends to invade our hearts and our lives, our homes, our habits, our neighborhoods, our cities with his righteousness. And if you're at all moved by his righteousness, you can't be silent and still about it. You're his righteous love on the ground. You're priests, the text tells us. You're the lampstand throwing off his light in the dark world. Our problem is that just as he did with John, Jesus is calling out, turn around, see me like this, know me like this. This changes everything. But we hurry along, busied with our meaningless tasks, staring numbly at the pavement. He has so much more for you if you have the eyes and the ears and the ache for it. A couple of years ago, a little one who belongs to me had a birthday coming. And as the weeks closed in on the day, she hadn't asked for anything. She couldn't think of anything that she might want. So to help her along, I took her to an over-the-top toy store. And that certainly did the trick. Broke her loose. It didn't happen like that all at once. We sort of walked into the store and she inched her way along sheepishly and and she saw something on a shelf and she said, "Uh, I I think I might like that. And we went a little bit further down the row and she said, ah, that would be fun. And we went further up and further into this toy paradise And she saw something else and her eyes lit up. And this time she spun around and she said, Dad, I have a pad of paper and a pencil in the car. You think we could write some of this stuff down? (laughs) So we went out to the car and back into the store. And her job was to point things out and mine was to write them down. And on our way home, she made me read back the list. And she would interrupt, Daddy, did you write down that thing? Yeah, I wrote it down. Oh, Dad, Dad, did you remember that other thing? Yes, baby, I remembered. I wrote it down. Dad, Dad, did you get it all? Yes, I promise you, I got it all. I didn't miss a thing. And this is the reason that so much of the time we live in fear and confusion and disappointment and imprisonment and frustration and failure and conflict and alienation, internal and external. We keep revising and reading out to Jesus our list of the things we're convinced will make us happy. And we keep saying to Jesus, 
Did you get it? Are you listening? You didn't miss anything, did you? You didn't leave anything out, did you? And Jesus in his glory, which he possesses in part out of tenderness for you, says, you have the wrong list. I've forgotten all of it before you spoke a word. Your list is rubbish. This is what I have for you. And he shows himself in his glory. He shows himself in his righteousness with this one last assurance. You can search. You can hunt. You will never find better. Let's pray. They are blessed of Jesus who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Give us that hunger then, that thirst, and give the only thing that will satisfy those appetites and cravings. The righteousness of Jesus filling up our thoughts, our emotions, our desires, our reflexes, practices, pursuits, and fellowship. Heal our homes and our church and our city. Lord Jesus, you are glorious and righteous. And only you can heal us in the way we need. Feed us with the bread of life, the bread of your suffering and atonement. And fill us with the cup of joy, the cup of purification and hearts renewed. At your table, do your subtle yet public ministry in us. And by your word and by the sacrament, with the unction and the power of your spirit, may God be glorified and good be done to our neighbors in Christ's name and for his sake. Now, church, along with the ancient church, what is it that you believe against false teaching and heresy? What is it that you say you believe about the true and living Savior, Jesus Christ? We believe in one God, the Father all-sovereign, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten, that is, of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, things in heaven and things on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was made flesh and became man, suffered and rose on the third day. He ascended into the heavens and is coming to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit.